Good evening. Over the last couple of years, I have done my absolute best to make people aware of what was happening across the English Channel. I did it because as the small boats began to arrive in larger and larger numbers, I noticed that mainstream media weren't talking about it. Well, they are now. In 2019, 1,843 people were recorded crossing the English Channel and taken in by the authorities. In 2020, that figure leapt to 8,466. Last year, the figure was revised upwards and it was 28,526. And so far this year, it's 4,555, which is three times the number that had crossed the channel at this stage last year. It's impossible really to put a number on how many will cross this year, but it's not difficult to say it could well be between 50 and 100,000 people. Why does it matter that so many, and about 90%, are young men? Why does it matter that so many young men without documentation are crossing the channel? Well, it matters for reasons of cost. It matters because of the crisis of housing. It matters because of the grounds of national security. But it matters because particularly conservative voters, and especially those Conservative voters in red wall seats are furious. They thought voting Brexit, they thought voting Boris Johnson in 2019 meant getting back control of our borders, not frankly being walked all over by criminal trafficking gangs. And so an idea that's been doing the rounds for some time now looks to be very, very close to fruition. It may well be agreed in Cabinet tomorrow. And it is the concept of offshore processing. So somebody arrives, is picked up in the English Channel, taken into the processing centre at Dover, and then would be flown off to Rwanda, where they would be processed. What are the upsides of doing that? Well, I guess one upside is to show the country that something is being done. The other upside is it may well act as a disincentive for people to pay 3,000, 5,000 euros to a trafficker if they think they're going to finish up in Rwanda. What are the downsides of this? One, it will cost a very, very great deal of money. And two, there is a risk that large numbers of people being held in a country like Rwanda uh, will actually be held in conditions that we don't find acceptable, uh, that many international observers begin to condemn, and we see cases of exploitation and abuse. That is the biggest risk on the downside. That is why the Australians, having started with offshore processing, in the end dropped it. But I guess if you're pretty Patel, what else can you do? All the while we're signed up to the European Convention on Human Rights, sending people straight back to France simply isn't an option. This is being done because there's nothing else they can think of to do. So you tell me, will this solve the cross-channel crisis? I want your views, please. Farage at gbnews.uk. My own view is, in the short term, it might help. I don't think it's a long-term solution. Well, joining me now is Philip Trott, Senior Counsel at Vanessa Gangwin, immigration lawyer. Um, Philip, it's quite within international law to do this, isn't it? I am not so sure you're right about that, because if you have a principle which permits an individual to be arrested and detained, 
and then shift offshore. Uh, there are certain fundamental rights that uh, an individual has to uh, fair process. And we know that Priti Patel has just lost fairly significantly the, um, the, the process that she was going through of seizing mobile phones of, immig uh, of immigrants so that they couldn't access um, legal advice and they were also uh, put in a position where they, uh, uh, where the government was attempting to find out who the people traffickers were. So she's, she's, she, she's certainly got a lot of egg on her face and I fear that she's going to have even more egg on her face um, any minute now if this comes into, if this comes into law. For example, how on earth would an individual be able to access quality immigration lawyer advice from Rwanda? How on earth? Just that's a very well, very well. I mean, I guess Philip, people like you, well, maybe not you yourself, but people like you will relocate to Rwanda because there'll be plenty of business on tap, um, and that advice will be paid for and provided by the British government, won't it? Uh, I have absolutely no idea because there's been no statement about what uh, facilities will be available. We, we, what we do know, and you've highlighted it in your uh, your introduction, is that the Rwandan government haven't exactly uh, got a shining reputation for uh, their treatment of um, of anybody. I mean, I, I don't want to run the risk of um, uh, the, the station being sued for libel, so I won't. <laughs> But you've already highlighted, uh, you've already highlighted the, the, the very serious issues, and I think yeah, but, I, but I do not what... believe that this is going to stop people traffickers, traffic trafficking people, and I think there's probably going to be a lot more um, infringement of liberties um, in Rwanda rather than infringement of liberties uh, in the United Kingdom. No, I mean, look, I completely understand that risk. And I'm, I, you know, I'm not giving this my full support and backing. I do think in the short term, it might be a deterrent to people paying uh, traffickers. I just don't know. I think it might be. But I mean, let's face it. These people are crossing the English Channel illegally. They don't have documentation. We haven't got a clue who they are. And the numbers, and I, you know, I gave a fairly broad um, banned earlier on, but let's say somewhere between 50 and 100,000 people will come this year. Well, it's already costing £1.7 billion a year to hire those uh, who are seeking asylum. Uh, the government has to be seen to do something. So if it's not this, what on earth could they do? Well, we've already had um, the former Chief Whip, uh, former Secretary of State of the Home Department, uh, David Davis, and one other minister um, plead against this provision as the as the bill is the current nationality borders bill is going through parliament and the cost of keeping a single migrant in a detention center uh, in Rwanda is in the region of um, I think the figures was uh, two million pounds a person now that you know that that can't that can't be right. You can put people in the Ritz for less than that. So um, I'm not supporting the government, but at the same time, I think there has got to be fair process. And at least when they are physically resident in the United Kingdom, there will be some fair process. 
But is there anything else the government can do? Because if we give people fair process, and we know that very large numbers of those that apply for refugee status don't get granted it, yet very, very few ever seem to get returned, what can we do? Well, I'm going to take issue with that statistic set where you said very few are granted. In fact, that's quite the compass. It's in excess of 50% are granted refugee status, in excess. And I haven't <laughs> I got the figures about, to well, hand. That strikes me as being a very low number. Well, but at least it's, if you were in their shoes, you would like your status to be respected rather than, rather than not respected. And I think it's pretty hard to have it respected when you're offshored. So what happens to those whose claims fail? They just stay anyway, don't they? Well, no, I mean, there, there, is a, there is a process for returns. And uh, the, I think the biggest issue is the fact that the government have been singularly inefficient when it's, coming, when it's come to returning, returning migrants. And we've, we've seen horrendous cases of people who've been involved in criminality who happen to have stayed. But that's, that's not the migrants' fault. That's the institution's fault. So uh, the fact that they're not, they haven't been returned is is unfortunate, but it shouldn't, it shouldn't be laid at the door of the migrant. Now, it wasn't the point I was making. The point I was making is the government has to be seen to do something. But clearly, Philip Trott, uh, the Rwanda plan does not inspire you in any way at all. And thank you uh, for coming on and giving us your thoughts and comments on it. Thank you. Well, let's see what happens. We're expecting Boris Johnson to make some big announcement about this. Uh, if not him, it'll be pretty Patel but it's not going to be straightforward and it's not going to be easy. Now, something that I think really is very, very disturbing is that the Wimbledon tennis championships are talking now quite openly about the world's number two men's tennis player, Daniel Medvedev, not being allowed to play at Wimbledon. Nigel Huddleston MP, who was the sports minister, said this. We wish to get assurance in a written declaration that they are not receiving money from Putin, Russia or Belarus, that they will not be making supportive comments of Putin, Russia or Belarus. Well, regardless whether that demand from the sports minister is made, it appears that Wimbledon's big concern is that Medvedev might win and that Vladimir Putin would use that for propaganda purposes. I think to rule somebody out of Wimbledon simply because they're Russian is very, very disturbing indeed. What next? Are they supposed to denounce those that don't believe in climate change? Just how political will all of this get? Now, we're told that the All England Tennis Club, as a private organisation, could bar anyone it wants and not find itself in contravention of any law. They're being egged on by the sports minister. And I know we always talk about sport and politics being separate, and they can't always be that. I know that. I understand that. But it does seem to me that to say to a Russian, you must denounce what is going on. Um, well, what if your mum and dad still lived in Moscow? I think they're putting Medvedev in a simply impossible position. I think he's being discriminated against because he is Russian. That's how I feel. I think Wimbledon and Huddleston have really, really got this wrong 
and it's a very disturbing direction. Well, let's get a view from Barry Flatman, retired tennis correspondent for the Sunday Times. Barry, have you ever seen anything like this in your time following tennis? I, I haven't, but we haven't been in a situation where um, Russia is uh, going to war with, with another country. Well, that is true, but that isn't Medvedev's fault, is it? No, it's not Medvedev's fault. Medvedev privately will tell people that he doesn't support the invasion. Uh, Alexander Rublev, the, the Russian second player, has, has made it blatantly clear that he doesn't support this invasion. He, he writes on the television screen, stop war and that sort of thing. So, you know, the tennis players aren't exactly flying the, the Russian flag uh, in glory when they're, when they're playing at the moment. But what if these tennis players, and, and, and there is also quite a good Belarusian male tennis player as well, what if these players just choose to say nothing, not to engage at all in the politics of it? Surely in those circumstances, if Wimbledon was to... I mean, they're not representing their country. You know, it's not a national football team or cricket team. It's not a Davis Cup no. match. They're there as individuals. Barry, surely it would be outrageous for Wimbledon to do this. I, I agree. I agree. If, if, they're, if they're using it as a political soapbox, then yeah, by all means ban them. But they're not doing that. They've never, they have no history of doing that. So I, and I from what I can be... understand, from what I can understand, the, there is no recourse because the All England Tennis Club can allow in or not allow in anyone they want. Won't this damage the reputation of Wimbledon, which, which actually, actually does ride pretty high in terms of public opinion? It won't do it any good. It won't do it any good. I mean, I, I think Wimbledon are taking the view, let's just see what happens um, rather than, than making a knee-jerk reaction now. But Wimbledon, being a private members club, can do what they want. Yeah, yeah. And it does seem, though, Barry, just sort of final thought on this, it does seem that the biggest worry that Wimbledon have is that this guy might win it. Yes, yes, that would that would then become awkward, wouldn't it? But uh, <laughs> well, it we would become had a awkward. Russian winner at Wimbledon since Maria Sharapova, and was she really Russian anyway? So uh, <laughs> you know, it's it's not really going to come to that crunch, I don't think. But we shall see. No, we really will, and this one's going to run and run. Barry, thank you for coming on and joining us to discuss this this evening. Yeah, I must say, I Pleasure. really do feel. I really do feel very, very strongly about this indeed. It can't be right. Imagine you go into a Weatherspoons. You're somewhere in quiet North Norfolk. You could be in Swaffham. You could be in Fakenham. You pop into Spoons. Who do you bump into? But John Travolta. We'll discuss that in a moment. So does jetting off those that land on Kent beaches or get picked up by border force on the RNLI to Rwanda, does it solve the channel crisis? One viewer says, no, send them back to France in the exact same way that we would if they arrived on a flight with no passport or visa. Difficulty with that is our old friend 
the ECHR. I know I keep saying it, but I'm not wrong. Grace says, yes, no one is going to pay traffickers thousands of pounds and take a risky journey in a dinghy to then be sent to Rwanda. That's the disincentive that I talked about. Shetty says, it's never going to happen. They're just saying it because the May elections are coming up. Gosh, what a cynical view of politicians that is. Yeah, you're probably right. Another says, not one person will leave. The courts won't allow it. Utter theatre. Trent says, it only works if you do it efficiently. When they land, um, when they bust them to a dedicated airfield and fly them out to Africa. Look, I, I, guys, this will be riddled with difficulty, but it does look like it's going to happen. Something. I guess, has to happen politically because they're in big trouble on this. Now, a very interesting ruling that came yesterday from the Equality and Human Rights Commission, and it is all to do with the trans round. And this is not something that I cover very often on this programme, but I thought this juncture was a moment we should discuss this. Because the judgment says, the ruling says, that trans women can legally be excluded from women's laboratories, changing rooms and other single-sex spaces. Um, and I suppose, you know, if you think, if there's a hostel, for argument's sake, uh, that has in it women that have been abused and raped, they might take very serious objection to somebody who is trans finishing up in a hostel like that. We talk a lot about minority rights, and there's little doubt there have been huge step-forwards in minority rights, in equality, and in fairness. But there is also the rights of the majority. And there are some that think this is a great ruling. The Daily Mail, huge screaming front page, huge boost for women's rights. That's how the Daily Mail feel about it. As I say, the majority have rights too. That's at least my feeling. But these are difficult murky waters. Well, joining me, who better than Peter Tatchell, LGBT and human rights campaigner uh, and director, of course, of the Peter Tatchell Foundation. Peter, good evening. Good evening, Nigel. Were you surprised by this ruling or is this, has there been sort of in the wind some change, you know, on this whole debate coming? Well, first of all, the Equality and Human Rights Commission's guidance is just that it's guidance. Yeah. It has okay. no force in law whatsoever. It is merely a recommendation. Um, what it seems to be saying is that there are certain legitimate circumstances where it would be proportionate to allow single sex spaces to exclude trans women. Uh, that is the main thrust of what it's saying. But that of course goes against the core principles of the Equality Act which is the actual law of the land, which is all about including trans people. Now, if we look at this issue in a dispassionate way, we can see that there are legitimate concerns about women's safety, and I support them. But it would be very wrong to generalize about all trans women and the underlying narrative or presumption of much of this guidance is that trans women are a potential threat to biological women. And that is simply factually untrue. Most trans women are no threat to anyone, least of all uh, biological women. 
life. I'm sure that's look. true. I'm sure that's true, Peter. But there have been one or two grievous cases, hasn't there? Haven't there? There've been cases in prison of trans women in women's prisons committing sexual assaults and rapes. I mean, these things have happened. Well, you're right. It is a very tiny minority of cases, but of course, in a democracy. We don't make law based on exceptional circumstances or breaches of trust and law. We, we base the law on the generality. So, for example, uh, I hope no one would say that Muslim people should be restricted in any way just because a tiny minority happen to be terrorists. They are unrepresentative of the Muslim community, and anybody who proposed to generalize against the whole Muslim community would rightly be shouted down. And I think it's the same with trans people. Um, you know, I have trans friends, and I've, I've had some I've known for over 50 years. Um, they are absolutely no threat to anyone. They are totally accepted by a lot, by biological women. I also have a friend who works in a women's centre in the north of England, and with the agreement of both the staff and the woman users, mm. they have accepted trans women for the last six years. There's never been a problem never been any incident or complaint whatsoever. So I think we have to keep things in proportion. Well, I'll tell you where there is a big problem, Peter, and where I think we really do have to draw a distinction between biological sex and chosen gender, and that is in the field of women's sport. I mean, clearly, the case of the American trans swimmer, uh, Leah Thomas, uh, has led to so many uh, women in sport saying, where is the incentive for a 14-year-old girl to get up at five o'clock in the morning to go and train if she's up against somebody who went through puberty as a male, is six foot three, has a completely different body to that of a woman? I mean, there surely, surely there, we have to draw some level of distinction between biological sex and chosen gender. Otherwise, it really is very, very bad news for women's rights. Well, I totally agree there has to be fairness in sport and that it is not right for women to be disadvantaged by other competitors for any particular reason. And again, we are talking about a tiny minority of trans athletes. But that doesn't matter, does it? But that doesn't matter, does it? You know, if, if, if you set your life's goal on winning an Olympic medal and you come fourth because one of the people in the top three you know, as I say, is seven or eight inches taller than you, has a completely different physical shape, you're going to be pretty upset. Well, I can understand that. Again, I'll, I'll reference my own personal example. I have a biological female friend who is six foot four. Now, should she be excluded from sport because she has this huge height advantage? Uh, she was... Uh <laughs> I'm sorry, there are some very tall women, but they do not have the same bone structures and physical shape as men uh, who, who have been through puberty and then have decided to change later in life. What are we going to do? I mean, are we, are we going to bring in some rules in sport that make it fair for women, or are we going to turn a blind eye, Peter, and say it's only the odd exceptional case? No, we mustn't look the other way. We must be fair. And I would favor individual assessment. So look at each individual trans athlete. You know, do they have a demonstrable proven advantage? It's not always the case that they do. I have a friend who plays for a woman football, woman's football team. She, among, among the team players, among the women, she is, is one of the smallest. She's got a very small physique. 
Um, she's towered over by some of the biological women. Wow. There's no way that her participation <laughs> in that football team gives her an unfair advantage. All right. And a final thought, Peter Tatchley, if I may, on the extraordinary events of last Friday, where the government managed to U-turn twice in the space of three hours. Uh, what are your thoughts uh, on, on those events last Friday? Well, the government promised us a ban on conversion therapy, full stop, way back in 2018, almost four years ago. It was reiterated in the Queen's speech last uh, year. Yeah. Yeah. Indeed, was confirmed last Wednesday in the House of Commons. Um, it is a complete shambles. The government doesn't know its ass from its elbow. Really, it is, it is symptomatic <laughs> of the chaos and incompetence in 10 Downing Street. I think on that point, we are in absolute, complete and total agreement. Peter Tatchell, thank you for joining me this evening. So the what the Farage moment. So there we are. Fakenham, Swaffham. These are small market towns up in the north of Norfolk. Very nice places. I know both of them. Uh, but imagine you go into Weatherspoons for a pint. You go shopping in Waitrose. You go out and about in town. And who do you bump into? Quite extraordinarily, John Travolta. Yeah, Travolta is there in Norfolk and there he is doing selfies with people. Now, would you recognise John Travolta? Uh, there's not much hair there. He's a bit older. I guess what gave it away was the fact that he had two bodyguards with him. Uh, but from what I can see, uh, John Travolta has been thoroughly enjoying his time in rural England and rural England is enjoying having John Travolta. And there's some wonderful quotes uh, from locals, uh, really shocked. Never thought we'd see John Travolta in Fakenham. Well, there you are. You never, ever know. But it's a nice little happy story. Now, one of the areas that I have covered on this show uh, time and again is the DVLA. And I was pretty critical of the DVLA uh, because, of course, during all this difficulty with COVID, there were strikes that took place, and I thought that was wrong. Well, getting the latest up-to-date information, you know, if you're waiting for a driving test, you're waiting for a provisional license, you've sent in your license because it's expired and you're waiting for it to be renewed, the chances are you could be in for a long, long wait. I've had a lot of emails from people saying their great difficulties, some people not even able to go back to work because they haven't got a valid driving license. Now, we have been in touch today with the DVLA uh, and they've explained to us that the current number of paper applications waiting to be processed is 839,000. That's nearly a million people uh, who are inconvenienced by what is going on at DVLA. They claim that this is not because of strikes. They claim this is not because of working from home. They say most people are back in the office. But Marmalade, who are a big car insurer, their estimate is that when it comes to getting driving tests, for example, the backlog won't be cleared until January 2024, which leaves all sorts of people in a very difficult position. Well, joining me now, a case study on this is Laura Riddy, and she's waiting for her provisional license. Laura, so you want to get your provisional license. Do you have to have yeah. that? Do you have to have that before you can do the theory test and then, of course, the practical? Yeah, you can't do anything um, without your provisional license. Um, 
because you need I think there's a number on it that you need to book your theory and your driving lessons um which I've been waiting for for coming up to seven months now so you've been waiting for seven months for this and are there lots of your yeah. friends in a similar position um yeah there are there are some that you know have had theirs and you know they've done their theory um and there are some that are also still waiting um like we can't get through to the dvla the tracking doesn't get updated like we don't get told anything and i bet and i bet I, mean, I you know i can remember being your age and wanting to pass that driving test wanting to get the first car wanting to feel mm -hmm. you're an adult you're free i mean it's a really exciting yeah. thing to go through do you have a message for the dvla laura um i just think that it's really unfair that there are a lot of people that you know want to start becoming more independent driving like it's it's a new like chapter and we haven't been able to go out for like year like two years now um, and now we can. We're getting held back by something else. And how do you get round this if you can't drive? Uh, it's not easy. I've been like I have a job, and the only way I can get there is spending money on Ubers. As I would walk, but you know it's dark night still. The weather's awful, and it's not the safest. Um, no, no. So it's costing me a lot of money. No, I get it for all of those mm -hmm. reasons, and you are one. Yep of many, many people in this position. And I cross my fingers for you uh, that hopefully after this interview, you go to the top of the list. Let's see. Laura, really, thank, so. <laughs> thank you for joining us. It's okay. And a, D, a DVLA spokesperson said, we handle millions of transactions every month and our online services are working as normal. And without delay, we've recruited more staff, increased overtime and new customer service centres to help reduce waiting times for customers. We are already back to normal processing times on vehicle paper transactions and aim to be back to normal processing for vast majority of driver's applications. By the end of May, they added that all staff whose role requires them to be on-site are on-site and urge people to make sure forms were filled out correctly and to use the online system to save time. So, there we are. Marmalade Insurance, everybody else, you're clearly all wrong. Channel 4 News, talk about a what the Farage moment. Channel 4 News is going to be sold off. It will no longer be in public ownership. Yes, I know it doesn't cost money, but it is a public service broadcaster. And it's being sold off because the world has moved on, the world has changed, and of course, there is uproar from much of the broadcasting establishment. All I can say is as a public service broadcaster, they abused their position of trust. Channel 4 News became an anti-Brexit, hard, left-wing campaigning organisation with no sense of balance whatsoever. I'm pleased to see what's happening. At eight o'clock at the top of the hour, Mark Stein is going to be with us. He joins me now to tell us what's coming up. I'll second what you just said about Channel 4. I was actually shocked when I watched Channel 4 News for the first time in several years. You're absolutely right there, Nigel. Uh, I, I also like that thing uh, where Peter Tatchell was talking about keeping things in proportion. Uh, we're going to try and do a bit of that tonight. And we're trying to, get, at the same time as talking about some things you're not supposed uh, to talk about, like uh, whether we are on the verge of a political earthquake in France and uh, government bureaucrats asserting that there is modern slavery 
right here in all corners of the United Kingdom. That's all coming up at eight, Nigel. Mark, thank you very much indeed. And certainly the opinion polls that are coming up from France showing Marine Le Pen much closer, potentially in the second round, to President Macron than anybody could ever have believed. A couple more thoughts from you on Rwanda. On Rwanda. Belinda says, if this really happens, it will be brilliant. We are spending millions upon millions on these illegal immigrants. It has to stop. Well, if it was to stop it, yes, but don't forget, it'll be very, very expensive to send people to Rwanda. Jeff says, I'll only believe offshore processing in Rwanda when I see it. And finally, Andrew says, yes, hurry up and get on with it. It may not be perfect, but the more difficult we make it, the greater the disincentive. I will be joined in a moment in the GB News Tavern by Brad Moore, actor. We'll talk to him about many things. It's the best part of the day. Yes, the GB News Tavern has been declared open. I'm joined by Brad Moore, film actor and director, and he's joining me here on Talking Pints. And welcome to the programme. Cheers. Thank you very much for having me. Now, we saw this morning on pretty much every front page of our newspapers and acres and acres of print and large obituary columns, June Brown, better known as Doc Cotton, died aged 95 and... Here she is, and because this was the role, wasn't it? Dot Cotton in EastEnders, uh, which she kind of made her own. Um, and I just sort of was thinking to myself, I looked through the obituaries, Brad, and, you know, she'd been in Z Cars. She'd been in The Sweeney. She'd been in Doctor Who. She'd briefly been in Corrie. She'd acted with some of the great. She'd appeared in films. Dixon of Doc Grimm. Dixon of Doc oh, Grimm. Oh, oh, I forgot oh, that one. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, unbelievable career. Um, she was 95. She was still on EastEnders in 2020. How many actresses or actors reached that level of prominence? Oh, she's a national treasure, isn't she? I mean, I think so. um, uh, we've got some great actors and actresses. Uh, she, she was wonderful. So, such a real person and so authentic on screen. Yeah. You know, and just, um, she directed theatre. I don't know if you spotted yeah, that. I was yeah. just reading about her a moment ago. I mean, what a life. Um, classically, and a classically trained actor. Classically trained. Who could put on any voice. Turn her, uh, t turn her skills to anything, really. Yeah, and you know, um, it just struck me uh, in that old school vein, um, no reality TV, no quick turbo fame, you know, ha ha had to tread the boards yeah. and had to, you know, yeah. l learn, learn the ropes and, and learn her craft and come through that way. I mean, she's wonderful. Now, a very, very different background to you, Brad, uh, because kind of acting wasn't really your thing, was it? You know, kicked out of college and you then... Yeah. <laughs> You know why I was kicked out? No, go on. <laughs> break dancing. I would right. be, yeah, I would be practicing break dancing in the gym, and uh, the head uh, of the college kept catching me doing it. I was just desperately wanted to break dance, and I don't know if you know anything about break dancing. <laughs> I don't know what it is. Yeah, it's a very difficult thing to master. So I was obsessed with that, which I guess lets you into a little bit of my personality. And <laughs> I couldn't stop myself, keep going in the gym, and in the end, he said, "If you keep break dancing, you're out." And then one day I was out. So. And off you go to be an estate agent, a magazine publisher, a finance broker, and then, I mean, yeah. were you back? all those things no I was I was reasonable all those things <laughs> you know like I was jack of all trades yeah. you know that that thing I, I could apply myself and get pretty good at something um, 
But I, um, I must have had an identity issues or something at the time because I was trying all these things. And then I was, I was at the cinema, which we all love, and you know, and that's a special place for me, obviously, being an actor and a filmmaker. Yeah. And I remember thinking, you know, you watch a, someone flying a helicopter, you watch a, a fireman or a soldier or someone, because they're all in heroic roles. And I don't know if you did this, but you put yourself in the protagonist's... You try to, uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you put him in his shoes. And I was thinking, well, I could do that. I could do this. I could do the other. And it struck me one day, they're all actors. So they're getting to do a little bit of everything, aren't they? They're getting to live out their fantasies and, you know, play out all these, these um, wonderful fantasies on screen. Um, so I started acting instead. But, you, but you've not been, you know, professionally trained. How no, do you, no, and no. you were, what, pushing 40 at that moment? Or? I, I was literally 40 when I started, yeah. So how do you become an actor? Oh, God, that was weird. Um, <laughs> I mean, clearly it's some kind of midlife crisis, you know. Um, <laughs> but it's a, it's a special spin on a midlife crisis, I think, because um, the Germans call it, I don't know if you know the word, it's called Torschlusspanik, which is... Because I always wanted to be an actor. So, you did? Yeah, from the age of 10, All right. I lived next door to Pauline Quirk. OK, wow, yeah. And yeah. She used to, just a quick backstory yeah. um, before we go back to the yeah. fun story. But yeah, basically, she'd come out of Anna Schur and she'd want to continue uh, her training. So we were in a council state in Stamford Hill, a place called Gibson Gardens, and I was good friends with her brother, Sean. And she'd come in and she'd play all these crazy games with us on the street, cobbled street, chairs. So she, she then became the director of extracurricular drama <laughs> training. And I was about 10 years old and got the bug and uh, the feeling of it never left me. So I just suppressed it, tried to go out and make a few quid, mm. as you would, you know, mm. the, the tough acting's a tough game. Mm. And then as I was approaching 40, I got this thing that I just mentioned, which is i got to make sure I say it correctly. Torsch Luz Panik, which is doors closing behind mm. you. So you're running out of time mm. to do all those things that you are passionate about or that you have in your heart, your heart's yep. desire. So I just quit my job. My uh, business partner at the time thought I was absolutely nuts, <laughs> as you would. And I said, I'm going to go and do uh, stand-up comedy. So I did stand-up first, because uh, that's kind of more of a working-class art. So my family cringed less when I said I'm going to go and do stand-up. I know it might be hard to understand, but we're very working class. The yeah. art's not in our paradigm. Yeah, so I yeah. said, I'm going to go and do stand-up. So they were like, oh, OK, because it's quite brave, isn't it, stand-up? OK, you're going to go and try and be funny, that's all right. If I, if I had said, you know, or, you know, coming like I'm a tortured artist, they would have been like, yeah. shut up, you silly <laughs> sausage. No, get, get, back, get back to doing whatever you do. So I did stand-up, then moved yeah. into acting. And you've got some great roles. I mean, how did you get in these films? How did you get in The Rise? How did you get in North v South? How did you get... I mean, how does it happen? Is it, is it networking? Is it, is it being pushy? It's a little bit of everything, you know. I, I think you, you... The first thing is you've got to really want it badly, you know, because you, you've got to want it. I had to... The stand-up, and I did 25 short films, so that was like my drama school. So I learned on the job... Um, I would turn up in a short film, and I think there's a, there's a, a big um, short filmmaking community in London. They'd see me in something, realise I'm cheap, and then I'd get cast through six degrees of separation. So I did like 24 short films in a two-year period, and then did the stand-up at the same time, which is brutal. Mm. You know, stand-up is real turbo training in terms of your performance. Um, so I did the short films and the stand-up, and that really got me kind of ready for feature films. I also uh, was part of a production company that um, made films, so that gave me another little in and a bit of an angle, and that's how the Timothy Spool one came around. Yeah, I saw that. And then Gloves Off, of course, which you sort of helped to write, and, 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 and very much one of your babies, um, with some great people you acted with in that, didn't you? Oh, that was, that's, Gloves Off was... 
it's still the six, apart from my son being born, it's the best six weeks of my life, yeah. without a shadow of a doubt. Denise Van Outen, Ricky Tomlinson, Paul Barber from The Full Monty. And we just had so much fun. Ricky would just, I mean, have you met Ricky? I don't know. No, I haven't. Ricky? Okay, so no. he's just like Tommy Cooper and Eric Morecambe. He's just got funny bones, you know. Um, you know, he is one of the funniest men I've ever met. And um, he, he would just continually and perpetually tell jokes. So everyone's morale's up and you're having a good time. But the actual film itself, I mean, it's, it's, it's quite a brutal subject, Gloves Off, isn't it? Yeah, yeah um, well, it was comedy, um, but prize fighting's brutal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so we try to get the balance of the comedy yeah. and the vice. So, it's not, so it wasn't, it wasn't glorification of it? It's not, no, not glorification of it, just trying to be a comedy drama, really, trying to yeah. keep it light. Like, uh, it was in the vein of the Full Monty. In fact, the Sun mm. uh, called it the Full Monty. So it's like yeah. that, brassed off. Yeah. Uh, East is East. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but with a bit of um, traveller. <laughs> I was going to say something quickly about Ricky as well, which is you have to avoid him if you've got some dramatic work to do. Right. So basically, because he makes fun all the time, if you've got to go and be emotional somewhere, I'd have to keep away from him for about four hours because he'd just have you giggling. We better get him on talking. We better get him on talking pints, because I think he and I politically would disagree, but we'd, we'd probably do it in a nice way, you know? Yeah, yeah, well, he had a lot of trouble in the 70s, didn't he? Mm, I say I trouble, it was his cause. And yeah, no, 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 I know that. It's interesting, really, Brad, you start off in, you know, you start off in stand-up comedy, and you clearly love humour and comedy still. Isn't life getting difficult for comedians in terms of what you can talk about, what you can joke about, safe spaces, cancel culture, people's gigs being stopped. I mean, it's getting harder, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm really surprised I'm still on. I thought I'd be cancelled already. <laughs> I was fully expecting a, a, a hook to take me off because I can easily say the wrong thing. Yeah. You know, as a comedian, you have to speak from the heart. And I, I get things wrong occasionally. Um, with, even not, I don't do stand-up anymore, but just generally trying to be funny in life, you yeah. know, in the pub or whatever. And you might be slightly inappropriate or whatever. And, you, and in the old days, you'd have said, oh, I'm sorry, that was a bit off. Yeah, you don't mean anything about yeah. it. There's no malice. But you're basically, when you make gags, you're taking a risk each time, aren't you? You're rolling a dice mm. on a gag. Mm. And, um, you know, I say to my son, I get the old tum tumbleweed that my son and all his mates don't laugh at, you know, and I'm sort of sitting there like, mm, please laugh. <laughs> but I say to him, you know, well, I've just made 18 good gags and you've got the one uh, mm. rubbish one. But, but you've got to take, take a risk. So, But where, uh, does, where does cancel culture take comedy? I just, or is there going to be a pendulum swing that sort of reverses back? I was just thinking, I, I, wouldn't, I, I couldn't imagine being a comic right now these last three or four years. You know, they're going after Joe Rogan at the moment, if you see Yeah, that, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't think of a more balanced... Joe's very right in some ways, yes. very left in other ways. I, yeah. To me, uh, with the people that I watch on YouTube, he feels like he has kind of some balance. Quite an, He's clearly a nice guy underneath it all, but they're going after him. They're going after him. Oh, yeah, Big after time. Him. Well, he's too successful as well, isn't he? Oh, I think a hundred million quid deal is <laughs> one of the reasons why they're going after him, isn't it? But is he too big to be cancelled? Um, in the end... I think the tech giants are so big. They, yeah. I mean, they cancelled Donald Trump. So then he's not too big to be cancelled. So he's not too big. No, he's not too big to be cancelled. But a thought on all of this, Brad, because, I mean, the one thing that I've noticed over the years is that the best stand-up comedians, the best humorists, are those who observe human nature, human mannerisms, but also they observe the world around them. They get the mood. Richard Pryor. You know, yeah. People like that. You I mean, know. Where, where do you feel we are as a country at the moment? Oh, God. I, I actually feeling more and more like a fish out of water. Not just uh, it was Brexit four years ago. Then you know these big media um, 
Right, what's wrong, what's, roller coaster. What's wrong with Nothing Brexit? Nothing wrong with Brexit. You did a very good job. And your hair is so beautifully grey, I now know why Brexit happened. I'm old lady's voting for it. It's got a really nice sheen in this light. It's clearly... Uh, the, the, your hair is the reason Brexit happened. But, yeah, no, I... Um, this roller coaster, Brexit, COVID, the war now. Yeah. I... I'm just feeling more and more like a fish out of water in this world. You know, I got a parking ticket at a petrol garage about a week ago. Petrol. You, I, I, I got the petrol. I had a coffee. I cleaned my car around the back because mm. I'm lazy. I don't do the mm. whole, you know, do-it-yourself thing. I just I like to stick a, stick a thing and then check out my social media, you know, and just sit back and watch the car get cleaned. And um, three days later, I got a parking ticket. Or two days later, I got a parking ticket. What's that all about? It takes you three hours to get through to a bank mm. to talk about your account. Mm. Yeah. It takes you three hours to get a utility bill paid. There's a bit of frustration in the country, isn't uh, there? I just don't... 20 years ago, I don't remember those all being... No, I know. Problems. No, I know. Well, look, I'll tell you what, Brad, what we need you to do is keep on producing entertaining content, funny content, because above all, what we need to do in any situation is to go on having a smile, isn't it? Ah, and that, that is crucial, because with the council culture and everything that is happening, will that, you know, are com comedians just getting more and more shut down? Um, and eventually, so terrified to say anything that nothing's funny anymore. Keep fighting, and thank yeah, you for yeah, joining no, cheers, me on Talking Pines. Very, very good. I could keep talking all afternoon, couldn't yeah, I? You could, you really yeah, could. yeah, yeah. Cut, you really cut could. on Brad. <laughs> cut on Brad. <laughs>